If you're new with us, well, we've just started a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. And uh, I promised you, after three weeks in chapter three of Exodus, that we would come to chapter four. Today's the day, baby. We get to chapter four today. Hallelujah. We are in, uh, today we're in Exodus chapter four. And we're going to look at verses one through 17. Uh, before we jump in there, so last week we saw that God calls us into friendship with him. Though we are sinners, though we are failures, uh, though we are unholy, he calls us into an intimate friendship uh, with himself. And then after he does that, he leads us out to spread his message of freedom to the ends of the earth. And when God did this to Moses, Moses greatly objected to this plan. Okay, And he objected by saying, in essence, that he just wasn't qualified. He wasn't qualified. He didn't have what it takes. He didn't have the right stuff needed for the job. Okay? Now, this is often our very same objection to God's call of us, to take the gospel to our neighbor and to the ends of the earth. We say, hey, we ain't qualified for this. I'm just not cut out for it. You know, I don't have the right stuff required for this task. You know, I'm an introvert. I don't know much about the Bible. Uh, I don't talk good, um, et cetera, et cetera. I just, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the right stuff required. Uh, so please choose someone else. <laughs> uh, that's very often our objection. And so what does God have to say? When we present that objection to his call, what does God have to say? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. So let's look at chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. What does God say about our objection to his calling? Verse 1 of chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or, or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake. And he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, Take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, go. 
I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. This is God's word. So this text shows us three things. If you got a bulletin when you came in, point number one in your outline. The first thing this text shows us is the shortcomings of Moses. He had a bunch of them. There's no doubt about it. So God calls Moses into his service, and Moses' objection is that he's not qualified. He ain't got the right stuff needed for the job. Okay? And God's answer is, In verse 2, God says in verse 2, really? You don't have what's required? What is that? What's that in your hand? Now, what is the significance of this question? Everything Yahweh says is significant. (laughs) So what is the significance of this question? Well, you might say, be sitting here this morning and you say, you know what, I just, this is fun talk, this is a cute story, but seriously, preacher, I'm not qualified. I don't have what it takes to be in God's service. I don't, I don't have it, okay? I ain't got it. And God is asking you the same question. Okay, well, but what do you have in your hand right now? What do you have right now? What are you doing right now? Moses, at this time, was a very ordinary shepherd. A shepherd for his father-in-law in the absolute middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. He's not exactly on an awe-inspiring career track at this point. And yet the infinitely holy God, the Almighty Himself, comes to this very ordinary and very sinful, very flawed man. And He comes to him and He says, I have something for you to do right now with what you currently have, with what you already got. I'm going to call you right now with what you have right now. So, what does Moses have? How does Moses answer the question? God says, what do you have in your hand? Well, what Moses had in his hand was a very rickety old shepherd's staff. That's all he had. And God is going to use this very ordinary thing to do extraordinary wonders. Wonders of which the world has never seen before. God 
loves to do that. I don't know if you, you know that or not, but he loves to do just that. He loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. He loves it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, quote, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, end quote. Now, this makes no sense to us, okay? Makes no sense to us. That's not how we operate. You know, if you're going to have some great job or some great career to do some great thing, you have to be greatly qualified for it, okay? Right? I mean, you've got to be greatly skilled. You've got to go to some school or, or enter some kind of program where you can gain enough skills to do the extraordinary. If you want to do something extraordinary, great. Knock yourself out. But you better have some extraordinary qualifications in order to do so. That's how we operate. That is not at all how God operates. In fact, it's the exact opposite. I mean, look, this is ridiculous. This makes no sense. And it makes no sense to Moses either. That's why, I mean, Moses is just scratching his head at this point. I mean, think about it. Here, for this difficult and important work, God takes someone who is unable to speak well and says to him, go and speak well. Like, that's literally the call. Go and speak well to the Israelite leaders and to Pharaoh himself. Go and speak well. This is absurd. Do you see? Do you see how absurd this is? I mean, Moses, look back at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech. And tongue. And God says, go and speak well. This would be like me saying to a blind man, go and see well. Or saying to a lame man, go and walk well. Like it's almost insulting. If not outright insulting. It's absurd. It's crazy. Uh, but don't you see? That's the entire point. That's the point. The very reason God chose Moses in the first place was because he could not talk well. Because he was unqualified for the task. That's why he was chosen. Why? Why does God choose the unqualified? Why does He choose weak things to shame the strong? Why does He choose foolish things to shame the wise? Because God intends for Moses, for Israel, and for Pharaoh to know good and well that it is God alone. God alone who is freeing the nation of Israel. Not Moses in all of his qualifications. It is God who's running the show. Not Moses. He wants Moses to know that. Israel to know that. Pharaoh to know that. He wants you and me to know that too. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise so that he gets the glory. Now, God helps Moses with this truth. And by giving him three signs here in our text. 
So let's walk through them together. The first sign, so Moses has this ordinary staff, right? And God is going to use that staff to confirm to the elders of Israel and to the Pharaoh that Yahweh is in charge. He's going to use that rickety old shepherd's staff. And so what happens here with the staff? What happens? The staff is thrown on the ground and it becomes what? A snake. A snake. And because every rational human is afraid of snakes, including Moses, he runs away from it, right? He steps back from it. People who are not afraid of snakes have something wrong with them, okay? Every rational person is afraid of snakes. I'm rational, therefore I am afraid, deathly afraid of snakes. Moses apparently is like me. He's a rational fella. He is afraid of this thing. So he throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake, and he, ah! he jumps back. Okay? He is struck by fear because of the snake. And then what does God say? God says, Moses, pick up the snake by the tail. Pick it up by the tail. Now, what is God trying to say here? Why is this so significant? Well, if you've ever seen anything in school or in movies about ancient Egypt, Answer this for me. What image is on the headdress of the kings? Yep, it's a cobra. It's a snake. What image is on their tombs? A snake. A cobra. It's the image of a snake that's on there. Why? Because the snake in ancient Egypt was the symbol of power and authority. It was the symbol. You know, in America, we have the bald eagle, right? The bald eagle's on everything. In ancient Egypt, it was the snake. It was the cobra. It was the symbol of power and authority. So, by having Moses pick up that snake by the tail, God is telling Moses and Israel's elders and Pharaoh himself that Yahweh is the authority here. Yahweh is the power here, not Pharaoh. Not Egypt. He's saying, oh yeah, the Pharaoh seems powerful to you, but to me, he's nothing. I can pick him up by his tail and do with him as I wish. Because I am Yahweh and he is nothing to me. So Yahweh is showing Moses who has the real power here. Now this has a related meaning to the next miracle that he gives to Moses. The miracle of the hand. So this is a, kind of a weird episode. It comes in verses 6 and 7. Let's look at those verses. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. And it had become as white as snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So what's going on here? Well, leprosy in the ancient world was a sure sign of death. It was a sure sign of death. It's not in our modern world, but it sure as heck was in that age and in that place. If you had leprosy, it was an absolute death sentence. Okay, Leprosy represented death. So if you were leprous, you had to be immediately exiled from normal society so that, because you're going to die. And they couldn't risk you giving 
that disease to the rest of the populace, so that you had to immediately be exiled. So it was, uh, if you were leprous in any kind of way or fashion, uh, it was a death sentence. So what is God saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am not only the God over Pharaoh, I am the God over all life and all death. All life and all death. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Did you see what God is saying? He's saying, I choose who lives or dies. Me. I cause things to live that I want to live and things to die that I want to die. And I will do with Egypt as I will and Israel as I will. Some will live and some will die. And they will all be at my hand. I will decide. For I am the God of life and death. And the, now the third sign given to Moses might be the most profound. They're all profound, but the third one is incredibly profound. Let's look at it together. Verse 9, God says, But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, in a very real sense, Israel was enslaved to two things, to two entities. Number one, of course, was Egypt. But number two, that most people don't think about, the second thing they were enslaved to was the Nile River. They were enslaved to the Nile River. Why is that? Well, because the Nile River was the source of life for the entire region. It's the only source of life. And I used to wonder as a kid, you know, in church, I would hear this story, I'd watch the movies, and you know, especially in the beginning when like the evil Pharaoh like took power and they knew things were ominous, I was like, why didn't they just run away? <laughs> you know, before, any, before the, you know, anything bad happened. Why didn't they just get out of there? Well, it's because they can't. They can't. They are slaves to the Nile. In this part of the world, it's the Nile or nothing. The, the Nile is the source of all life. And apart from it, you cannot survive. You cannot survive away from the Nile. It's hundreds and hundreds of miles of sand in every direction. You will die, okay, apart from the Nile. You have to stay close to it. And so in that way, Egypt was also a slave to the Nile. They were completely dependent upon it for their survival, for their life. And so this third sign... It's really a prophecy. It's a prophecy of what's going to happen. You see, God is saying with this sign, Egypt will not listen to me. They do not depend on me. They will not turn to me. And so, I will show them who the true source of life really is. I will turn their river of life into the river of death. I will show them who the real source of life and death truly is. It's not the Nile. It's Yahweh. 
So, with Moses' very ordinary and insignificant staff, God is calling him to do something extremely significant, extremely extraordinary. And so God's same question comes to you. God says, what is in your hand? And you say, well, I don't have much. Like I just, I, I ain't got much, you know? Uh, I, I'm just not qualified for this task. Like, I, you know, let, let's let the preachers do the preaching. Let's let the preachers spread the gospel of grace. And, and let, let me just kind of sit back and, and relax and just listen. I'm not qualified. I, I can't really do anything else. You know, I can't talk good. I don't have a good education. I don't know much about the Bible. Like I just, there's not much in my hands here. I don't, I don't, have, I don't have much for you to work with, Lord. And God is saying, yeah, yeah, I know. That's the whole point. <laughs> That's the whole point. It's the reason I called you. But this truth is very, very hard for us to accept. This is tough to grasp. It's a really cute story with Moses, and that's fun. It's exciting to read a story like this. But when it comes to us in our lives, it's very hard for us to accept that we could be used by God to do anything. Why? Well, that brings us to our next point. Point number two in your outline is the crisis of humanity. The crisis of humanity. We see here in the text that at every step of the way, every step of the way in God's calling of Moses, Moses shrinks back from the opportunity. Every time he yabuts yeah God. Five different times he yabuts yeah him. Yeah, but, yeah, but, well, yeah, but, yeah, but. He yabuts yeah him five times. He shrinks back from this opportunity. Why does he do that? Because while he's experiencing the power of God, he is at the same time experiencing another power at work. Another power. What is that? It's the power that is desperate for the approval of others. That is the power that is at work. So he's got God's power, the burning bush, the voice of Yahweh on one hand. And on the other hand, there's this power that is telling him, it's very, very important what other people think of you. It's very important. Moses fears God, he does, but he also fears man. He fears man too. And so God's calling of him then reveals a crisis that's going on on the inside of Moses. And this also reveals a crisis going on on the inside of you and me. There's a crisis happening in all of us. All of us, me included, I'll raise my hand. All of us, me included, desire the approval of man more than the approval of God. It's the truth. Moses here is very, very concerned with what other people will think of him. Why? Well, because he sees God as extraordinarily powerful, yes, but he doesn't think he can trust him. He doesn't think he can trust him. He he's not sure of God's character. He's just not sure. He's not sure that he can believe the things that God has said. And so here's the conclusion that Moses reaches. It's in verse 13. Verse 13, here's the conclusion. After all of this conversation and the back and forth, his, all of his yeah budding and all of God's promises and reassurance, here's Moses' final conclusion. Verse 13, 
But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. That's Moses' conclusion. Moses says, here am I, send someone else. It's the exact opposite of Isaiah. <laughs> here am I, send someone else. I'm not qualified. Like, let's wrap this up, God, <laughs> right here. Let's put a bow on this. My answer is no. I, can't, I cannot do this. Because Moses knows good and well. If he stands before the leaders of Israel and the leaders of Egypt, he will have no credibility. They will have no respect for him at all. And so what he's experiencing is what modern psychologists call the imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome. Moses believes that deep down, he is a fraud. He is a fraud. And you and I are afraid of the exact same thing. Exactly the same thing. We're afraid that we're frauds. We're afraid that we're not as good-looking as we portray, uh, as smart as we portray, as talented as we portray, as holy and righteous as we portray, etc., etc., etc. And we are scared to death. As scared as Moses was of the snake, we are scared to death that one day someone's going to find us out. We're afraid the truth will get out there somehow, some way. And that we're going to be exposed as the frauds that we really are. This is the imposter syndrome. And all humans deal with it. And would you like to know how modern psychologists say you're supposed to deal with it? Here's what they have to say. Modern psychology, they say that the best remedy for the imposter syndrome is for you to get a notebook and begin every day writing down all of the awesome things that you do. All the great things that you do, just start writing them down. <laughs> and then just continually look at that notebook, okay? You just go back and back and back and you look and you say, wow, I am a good fella. I do a lot of really great things. And gosh darn it, people like me. Look at that. They want you to keep a good works notebook, okay? That's <laughs> what so they want you to do. So that you can read the notebook and you can see that indeed you're not an imposter. You're not a fraud. You're a great person. Now, here are two enormous problems with that approach. Enormous problems. Number one, we've all done things or said things in our life that are so bad, so vile, that no amount of good things can overcome them. We've all done that. We will always be ashamed of them. We'll always be burdened by them. We'll always be haunted by them. Certain mistakes or failures or things we've done in the past, they'll always haunt us and no notebook full of our good deeds can erase them. They're still there. It doesn't erase our sins. It doesn't erase our failures. That's problem number one with that approach. Problem number two Dwelling on all the good things that we do, 
ironically, just feeds the beast. It actually feeds the problem. <laughs> it's hilarious. Because let's think about it together. How do you know when your notebook is full enough? When's it full enough? Does it have to be half full? Three-fourths? All the way full? Do you have to get a second notebook? Like, when is enough good works enough? Nobody tells you. Nobody tells you. How long does my list have to be before I'm comfortable, before I'm accepted, before I feel valuable, before I feel like I'm not an imposter? How long does my list have to be? And the answer is, it will never be long enough. <laughs> you can have a stack of notebooks full of your good works, and there won't be enough. It won't be enough. You see, this approach ironically produces more anxiety in us because it says that we always must be doing more and more and more and more and more so that one day, maybe, hopefully, cross our fingers, we could look at our notebooks full of accomplishments and sit back and relax and rest and say, I am a good person. I am not a fraud. But sadly, that day never comes. It never comes. We always fall short. We're always insecure. Of course, the ultimate irony of keeping a list of your good works means that every single item that you wrote down is not good. It's not good. Why do I say that? Because you weren't doing all these good things for your neighbor for their sake. Who are you doing them for? Your sake. Uh, you're doing them for you. You weren't doing them for them. So every single thing you wrote down in your stupid notebook is selfish. It's about you. <laughs> it ain't about your neighbor. All these good things ain't good at all. As it turns out, everything written in your notebooks is wicked. It's self-serving. It's narcissism at its finest. And this is Moses. This is Moses. He receives this incredible gift from Yahweh. This incredible privilege to be called by the Almighty himself for this work. And he does not see it as a privilege at all. He sees it as a tremendous burden. A tremendous burden that he is totally unwilling to carry. Totally unwilling. Why? Because the burning bush has revealed to Moses, he's exposed Moses as a fraud. It's exposed him. He knows. What does he start doing? What does he start yabbutting God with? All of his own shortcomings and failures. That's what he does. It's exposed him. He's out there in the wilderness, minding his own business, having a pretty decent life out there, tending sheep for his father-in-law. Everything's okay. He's safe. He's comfortable. What does the burning bush do? 
It exposes who Moses really is. Moses is a sinner. Moses has a lot of shortcomings. Moses has a lot of failures. He's not up to the task. That's what the burning burning bush does for Moses. That's what it does for you and me too. It reveals that we're frauds. And so what do we do when we're revealed as a fraud? We reject our maker and his call in our lives. We say, nope, leave it to the preacher. Leave it to the preacher. He's got the education. He's got the speaking ability. Let him do it. He's, been, he's qualified. I'm not. Let him do it. I'll just do my thing and let, let him do his thing and we'll be good. We immediately reject our creator and his call in our lives to spread his gospel because we're frauds. But how does God respond? How does God respond? All of us in, in our lives have come to the conclusion Moses came to. <laughs> in verse 13, uh, pardon your servant, Lord. Choose someone else. We've all gotten there. <laughs> okay, Please choose someone different than me. How does God respond to Moses' rejection and to mine and your rejection of the call? With wrath? With fury? That brings us to our last point. We'll close with this. Point number three, the compassion of God. The compassion of God. So in verse 13, Moses states his final answer to God's call. He says, no, I won't do it. Let's just put a bow on it right here, Yahweh. I'm done. I'm not going to do this. Okay. And then in verse 14, it says that the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. The anger of the Lord burned against Moses. But with the very next breath, what does God say? The very next thing. He burns with anger against Moses. What's the next thing he says? He says, I'm sending Aaron to help you. And I will be with both of you. I will help you. I'll help you. Now this is bizarre when you think about it for just a second it makes no sense how could this be how could this be i mean this is unbelievable the anger of the almighty (laughs) burned against moses moses should have been incinerated right there on the spot but he wasn't He wasn't incinerated. Instead, Moses would indeed go on to liberate the nation of Israel. And today, half of the entire world's population believes Moses' writings to be the very words of God. Half the world believes that. So, for you and for me, how do we overcome the imposter syndrome? How do we answer God's call with confidence and joy? How do we learn to trust the character of God? How do we know that we can trust Him? We know He's powerful, but how do we learn to trust Him? Well, we have to see where God's anger went. We have to see where God's anger went. You see, God is perfectly righteous and good. Therefore, he's not like us. He doesn't lose his cool and fly off the handle with anger. No, 
God's anger is always righteous anger. If God is angry, then it is perfectly justified. But that means that in order for God to remain just, his anger must come down on the object of his wrath. It must. God's anger can't just disappear. He can't just do some breathing exercises to calm down. Just calm down, Yahweh, calm down. Because his anger is righteous. It is good. It is just. It can't just disappear. So, where did it go? Where did it go? Why didn't God's anger come down on Moses? Because hundreds of years after this story, it would come down on someone else. On a lonely hill called Calvary. The full wrath of God against Moses and against me and against you would come down on Jesus, our great substitute. It would come down on God's own son. Moses deserved that anger for rejecting God and his call. You and I deserve that anger for rejecting God and his call. But the wonder and the beauty of the gospel is that God's anger doesn't come down on us. It comes down on his son. It comes down on Jesus, our substitute. You know, I've heard so many believers tell me over the years, you know, preacher, you know, God's just mad at me right now. I've just, you know, I've just blown it a lot, and God's just mad at me you know, for my sin. No, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. No, he's not. God is not mad at you for your sin. God was mad at Jesus for your sin. All of his wrath for your sin has already been poured out. There is none left for you. None. Jesus has taken it all. Jesus Christ took Moses' place, receiving the full wrath from God Moses deserved. And Jesus Christ took your place, receiving the full wrath from God you deserve. And don't you see what that means? <laughs> it means you can finally be free from the imposter syndrome. You don't have to fake it anymore. You forever have the approval of the only one whose approval actually matters. You have it forever. Your shortcomings, sins, and failures have all been wiped away by the blood of Jesus. And you don't have to keep a list of your good deeds anymore. Oh, that's exhausting. <laughs> Holy moly. You could throw all those notebooks straight in the garbage. They're worthless. <laughs> you don't have to keep a list of your good deeds anymore. Instead, you keep a list of Jesus' good deeds. I put them up on the board over there. 
The youth group calls it a cheat sheet. Cheat sheet. They're like, hey, you put a cheat sheet up there. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I did. This is an open book test, okay? <laughs> I put the to-do list of what, uh, the list of what Jesus has done on the board up there. Because that's what Christianity is. Christianity is not a to-do list. It's a what Jesus did list. That's what Christianity is. And we look at that list and we remember. <laughs> we remember, oh yeah, my creator loves me. My creator accepts me. Yes, I blow it. Yes, I screw up. Yes, I have tons of shortcomings. Yes, I have tons of sins and none of them matter to my creator. None of them matter. He loves me and accepts me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Christianity is not a to-do list. It's a what Jesus did list. And what did he do? He died. <laughs> he died for your sins. And he rose again for your sins. For your forgiveness. For you and for me. And therefore, because Jesus has done that, an infinitely holy God can look at you and look at me with a straight face. With a straight face. He can look at me and you and Moses and say, you know what? Use whatever's in your hand. Just use whatever you have to spread the message of my freedom. And you'll fail and you'll screw up and you'll do it poorly, and I'll love you, and I'll be with you all the way. <laughs> I will be with you always, because Jesus has made it so. He's made it so.